This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Does social science, as it is commonly understood and practiced, work in post-socialist settings? That may sound like an absurd question, even a bit crude. But my guests today, Alec Kortz and Noah Sobi, see limits to the very social imaginaries underpinning social science. The notion of utopia quickly escaped more, and I would propose kind of has become the paradigmatic form of the social imaginary across Europe and North America. Of course, more often than not, we encounter utopias in ruin. But the idea is that examining utopias is one strategy for engaging with possible futures of human society. They argue that the diversity of post-socialist transformations challenges the existing paradigms and frameworks of theory and method used in much social science research today. It is important to pay attention to the diversity of uh, uh, socialist educational reforms and processes as much as, not wholesale, but there's definitely a Western reform adoption process happening across the region. But the way they're being re-adopted and and recontextualized or indigenized um, in local contexts are very different. Together with Iveta Solova and Serhi Kovolchuk, Ala and Noah co-edited a 17-chapter volume entitled Reimagining Utopias, Theory and Method for Education Research in Post-Socialist Contexts. The book explores from many perspectives the shifting social imaginaries of post-socialist transformations to understand what happens when the new and the old utopias of post-socialism confront the new and old utopias of social science. Ala Korsht is an assistant professor of international education at the School for International Training, Graduate Institute, World Learning. Noah Sobi is a professor of cultural and educational policy studies at Loyola University Chicago and past president of the Comparative and International Education Society. Ala Korch and Noah Sobi, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks for having us, Will. Thanks a lot, Will. It's great to be here. So I want to just start by asking, what do you mean by the word utopia? So uh, part of choosing that title uh, was to recognize that alongside the political and economic project that was state socialism, there was also a particular social vision. So ideas of equality were important, even dignity, democracy were important names, of course, sometimes honored in the breach. So basically, like in invoking utopias, we're trying to elevate the importance of social imaginaries. You know, 20th century socialisms had their social imaginaries, and part of post-socialism is like the encounter of different utopian visions for what makes a good society, the good human being, um, the good future. And whose utopias are these? (laughs) That's a good question, Will. Well, just in terms of thinking about utopias, um, I think in a lot of ways we were inspired by an eminent Polish historian and philosopher named Bronislaw Baczko, uh, who worked for many years in Switzerland and France. And kind of like Benedict Anderson did with his work on national imaginaries, in books like Utopian Lights, Bochco put the importance of social imaginaries on the research horizon. So, I mean, utopia 
is no place, right? I mean, it has its origins in Thomas More's 16th century political fiction. Of course, that was inspired by Plato. But the notion of utopia like quickly escaped more, and I, I would propose kind of has become the paradigmatic form of the social imaginary across Europe and North America. Of course, more often than not, we encounter utopias in ruins, but the idea is that examining utopias is one strategy for engaging with possible futures, right? Possible futures of human societies. So what are socialist utopias? Um, there are multiple socialist utopias. I mean, there are multiple socialisms. You know, key pieces involve ideas about human equality and human dignity, right? I mean, even commitments to democracy as sort of difficult as it is uh, sometimes to wrap our mind around that given the totalitarian political forms that many socialisms took. You know, but there were also, you know, a lot of sort of quite laudable social goals, uh, gender equality, you know, a, a fair economic system that are quite different than the utopias of capitalism, for example. So I think what's particularly fascinating about the post-socialist space is that those don't vanish. You know, they continue, they get reconfigured, and they interact with, with other social imaginary that people bring in and that are brought in. Does it also, does the post-socialist utopia or imaginaries uh, not only connect to these socialist utopias of the past, but does it also embrace some more of the uh, the capitalist utopias that you were also talking about? Is or Do they sort of merge together? Yeah, I mean, I think, so we chose the title Reimagining Utopias because it describes sort of what's happening um, on the ground. I mean, it describes uh, what's been happening in post-socialist settings, other settings as well, but the post-socialist settings are the one we focus on over the last 20 to 30 years. So we're describing a process of uh, sort of coexistence and conflict, um, negotiation that's taking place in the world, in classrooms, right, in offices, in homes, basically as people navigating, navigate changing global situations. But there's, there's another, there's a sort of second important dimension to reimagining utopias that we're trying to develop or play with in the book. And that relates to the notion of social science. You know, I think it's quite possible to consider a lot of uh, European North American social science as, as a utopian project in and of itself, as riven with social imaginaries, right? I mean, so the scientist, the researcher of society, generally is committed to the idea that better, sort of firmer, fairer, more just knowledge of society is valuable for aiding a transition from what is now to what will be next, right? So there's a, there's a lot of utopian thinking and social visions that are embedded in, in process of social science research. And certainly we saw uh, a lot of the, the research that was done on post-socialist, particularly Eurasia, but other parts of the world as well, you know, powerfully shaped by those imaginaries. And so one of the things we're trying to do in the book is, is to rethink some of that, you know, to actually reimagine... Uh, the social imaginaries, the utopias that are embedded in social science, that are embedded in comparative education. So before we jump into that larger topic, I do want to ask a little bit about what sort of contexts were you looking at? Um, you know, post-socialism, I would imagine, covers many parts of the world. So what contexts were of interest to you? 
Um, yeah, this is a really good question. Well, uh, by post-socialism, we really mean any country that has experienced some form of socialism and has been on this pathway or transition to neoliberal capitalism. So initially, when we started this project, we really looked at the former Soviet Union uh, as that post-socialist space, but then we realized that there are other countries that have had similar transformations within different contexts, within different cultural contexts. And, and those are countries in Asia and Africa. And we've included those in our edited volume. We have contributors who have uh, focused on Ethiopia, South Africa, Tanzania, Zimbabwe. So it's pretty comprehensive. And would this also include countries that are still socialist, but also embracing lots of neoliberal capitalism? Like they're not post-socialist. It's not outside of socialism. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So like Vietnam and say China. China, exactly. Because every country, uh, even on its post-socialist uh, trajectory, is, is still grappling with, you know, the vestiges of, of socialism uh, um, as it's sort of embracing in at its own pace, um, embracing these forms of neoliberal capitalism. Will, I think your question is a great one because it also raises sort of what we and others mean by the concept of post, right? So it's really not a break and a departure from, but a turn. As Ala was saying, it's about grappling with the legacies. And your example of Vietnam is a perfect example of that. In theory, a socialist state, but one in which socialism has certainly taken a turn and taken on new forms and been combined with other things. So I would say in that sense, it is, you know, accurately post-socialist and like the other settings examined in the book. So, and, and Noah, you said that earlier that there were many different socialisms. So I would imagine there are many different post-socialisms. I would agree with that, Ala. Mm -hmm. Yes, most definitely. And I think we're probably part of the group of uh, scholars who critique the um, transitology approach to uh, post-socialism. Uh, who view it as a sort of this linear or, or temporal transition, right? Like a, a quick breakaway from socialism into post-socialism and really recognize the diversity of post-socialist experiences and transformations. And, and therefore, every context will have you know, perhaps some similarities, but also very much diverse intricacies of, of those transformations. So yes, it, it would uh, entail multiple post-socialisms so if we connect this to this idea of social science and these, you know, the utopian thinking in social science, how are some of these different post-socialisms sort of producing social science? You know, what are the different ways in which we can think of what social science is? You know, social science as a way of producing certain, certain knowledges and that they're actually quite different from this transitology approach or this linear thinking of, of what post-socialism is, but if there's this diversity that you're talking about, then what does that diversity look like in terms of what is valid knowledge? How do we produce knowledge in these different contexts? So through our book, we have um, seen obviously that an over-reliance on Western dominant knowledges often results in the displacement of the non-Western knowledges uh, experiences rendering them as insufficiently scientific, for example. And our contributors have uh, demonstrated a number of ways to produce and validate um, knowledge in post-socialist context. And one of them is the use of local traditions of knowledge production. 
And what we mean by that is the rediscovery of the forgotten or discarded meanings of certain concepts and practices um, as a way of creating spaces for multiple knowledges to coexist. Um, African scholars like uh, Waldes and Melissa in our volume interrogate, for example, the notion of good education, right? And this, uh, the indigenous uh, meaning and understanding of what good education means in juxtaposition with uh, Western-imposed uh, concepts and values. Uh, so again, one way is uh, the use of local tradition of knowledge production. Um, another way is, it's more of a methodological approach, is to stay flexible, sort of flexibility and creativity with culturally appropriate methods. What we've seen is that a lot of research tends to rely on traditionally established uh, data collection methods, uh, qualitative data collection methods, such as surveys or interviews of focus groups, uh, observations or, or document analysis to produce valid knowledge of post-socialist context. And they might be, you know, rigorously uh, conceived studies, but they might not necessarily be capturing the nuanced realities um, of the post-socialist lived experiences. Uh, namely, uh, if we look at the method of surveys, for example, when employing surveys, we can generate a ton of data, but it might not be the most credible data, right? Especially when surveys are run in uh, context with political, historical, and cultural legacies of Soviet state control and surveillance over public knowledge and performance. Another method that comes to mind is formal interviews and focus groups. Uh, those methods might actually evoke memories of interrogation which in, post, in, in Soviet uh, contexts uh, resulted in public arrests or detention, right? Which further complicates uh, the data gathering and uh, the credibility of data. And therefore, as some of our contributors um, shared, it's important to reimagine the uh, culturally appropriate methods and replace formal interviews with conversational uh, interviews, for example. And these, you know, conversational methods should not be discarded as invalid or less scientific or, or less rigorous. Uh, they might be more culturally appropriate in certain contexts where a participant might feel more comfortable being surrounded by family members and community members to be um, sharing that knowledge with, um, with the researcher. And finally, um, what's important to highlight as in order to navigate these theoretical and methodological dilemmas, one must remain critically reflexive throughout the entire research process, questioning their own subjectivities and carefully rethinking the uh, representation of the other and recognizing the multiple forms of uh, knowledges of our participants and, and um, treating them as equal collaborators and co-constructors of that knowledge. So would that mean, uh, on this last point of being reflective and making sure you're accurately representing others um, and bringing them in as co-collaborators, some of what we might call in, in Western science, quote-unquote, research participants, um, does this actually mean like sharing with uh, people that you've had these sort of conversational engagements with things that you've written or basically, quote-unquote, analyzing data, but data as, of course, being reimagined as well here. 
how do you actually create this reflective moment in these post-socialist contexts? It's important to stay critically reflexive throughout the entire process, right? And to engage the participants, not only in, you know, in the data collection, but also, you know, traditional in the West, you know, we've called this strategy of member check-in when we engage participants in checking sort of for accuracy of rendering that data uh, in the transcript, but also interpretation. It's not enough just to check in with a participant and say, am I, you know, did I capture it correctly and accurately? But it's important to really engage them in the interpretation of their knowledge in that local context. And I think this would be a really important point for a researcher to stay critically reflexive about adoption of this Western frameworks, right? Western interpretations of the local phenomena. Um, and, and checking in with the participant if what we think is happening in, indeed, um, whether that's, that resonates with their own understanding of their own lived experience. You mentioned research participants, right? Another term that gets used quite a bit in Western social science is the informant, right? I mean, so you can imagine just sort of how, how problematic that term is. I mean, also collaborator, right? These are problematic terms in parts of the world, right? Or even take the... Uh, you know, the process of human subjects, informed consent. Oh, don't worry, this fought, just sign your signature and it's just going to go in a drawer, right? And no one's ever going to look at it. You know, I just need your consent, right? I mean, these are some practices that in certain circles people sort of take as natural and as the best way and as unchallengeable. But in other parts of the world, they're raised serious problems and relational problems, but also problems around how knowledge is generated and how people, frankly, are respected. I want to ask a very practical question. So if not research participant or informant or collaborator, then what? Well, I think participant isn't completely corrupt. Allah, what do you think? Um, I've embraced the term participant uh, throughout my research and also teaching. But I think the fact that, that there is no like one best answer is telling. So this book was designed as, as a research methods text, and it's very different than most research methods texts. You know, it's not a, a sort of how to bake a cake type of recipe. Instead, one of the things that all our authors engage with across the book, and there was a really nice multi-year collaborative process that led to this, um, but one of the things that, that pretty much everyone engages with is this notion of the dilemma, right? I mean, researchers in the field face dilemmas. And one of them we've just been talking about, how you think about conceptualize and interact with the people that you're studying people, assuming you're studying people, right? And to think of it as a dilemma uh, sort of frames it as something that around which we do have to make choices, right? Uh, and we have to hope that we're going to make better choices, right? And that next time we'll make even better choices, right? I mean, so there are better and poorer ways to do this, right? But at the same time, there's no like, there's no magic solution. And you sort of what you do in Kyrgyzstan is going to be very different than what you do in Vietnam than Poland, right? So to frame it as a dilemma, so not only, you know, how you identify researchers, but how you collect data, how you analyze data, all those dimensions, I think are, are really critical. Right. So there's no necessarily universal answer here. It's context specific. It's historically specific. I mean, that that's quite interesting um, sort of way to reimagine the way in which social science is even done, in a sense. I'd like to ask, were you influenced by Raywin Connell's Southern theory in this work on post reimagining post-socialisms? Yeah. I mean, uh, 
Connell's work, other people's work uh, on Southern theory has been really influential. You know, I also think of Asia's method as an inspiration. Uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, connections between doing work in post-socialist settings uh, and in post-colonial settings, right? One of the things Ala was just going over with in terms of some of the research methods, like, you know, the questionability of a, of, of a survey or formal interviews, really turn on some of the same questions about bases on which we generate knowledge, the sort of conditions of possibility that make it possible to know things in the world, you know, which is something that people working in a post-colonial tradition are very much challenging. And so that's one of the clear connections with what the editors and the contributors to this book are doing and working in a post-socialist setting to really challenge, work with, and challenge ourselves around, you know, how it is we think about this whole knowledge producing project. And how does this then impact the way we think about the social world? So, I mean, for example, let's say the this big topic of globalization and theories of globalization. Does the, this reimagining post-socialisms sort of create new meanings and new insights into this sort of phenomenon of globalization? So it's a great question, Will. Uh, I think that you know, one of the things that exploring the variety and variability within post-socialist context shows us is that, well, for one, we need to rethink how we think about context in the first place. It's something that uh, we shouldn't just take as a given fact, but we should understand how contexts are produced. And clearly, global processes and global um, phenomenon are, are one piece of that, uh, as are indigenous, local, uh, and the other sort of many layers um, kind of, of influences, uh, techniques, practices, and so forth that go into creating the, the embeddedness of any educational um, interaction. You know, the other thing that I think when you read across the book becomes very clear in relation to globalization is that globalization is as much a reaching in as it is a reaching out, right? That I think it's, well, we should be long past the point where we conceive of local as a place and the global as a force, although we still see features of that in a lot of comparative education scholarship. The global is constructed in remote parts of Central Asia in ways that are very similar to how it's constructed in Brussels or New York. Um, and we need to examine sort of the, the production, the reaching out to the global as much as the global reaching in. And I think you see both across the book. Yeah, and I think uh, what our volume contributes to is, you know, the existing body of uh, scholarship and knowledge um, in globalization studies um, on the divergence, right, of local experiences and transformations. And I think this is uh, one of the key arguments that we're trying to make is that it's, it is important to pay attention to the diversity of uh, uh, socialist educational reforms and, and processes as much as not wholesale, but there's definitely a Western reform adoption process happening across the region. But the way they're being re-adopted and, and recontextualized or in indigenized um, in local contexts are very different. And, and those nuances really need to be uncovered and theorized and reflected on. And Along the lines of you know what Noah mentioned earlier about um, the, the highlight of the book being the dilemmas of fieldwork, as much as we're seeing the commonalities across so many uh, our contributors in terms of what dilemmas they faced, 
there are so many nuances also about those dilemmas um, as they are contextualized in, in those cultural landscapes. Is there an uh, example of some of these dilemmas that you could point to to show these diversity of differences in fieldwork in these post-socialist contexts? Yeah, I would say, you know, one of them is, uh, you know, grappling with methods. Again, thinking back to surveys or focus groups or um, interviews or even, you know, diaries, for example, right? Um, and one of the dilemmas is that we go into the field expecting uh, those methods to work because, you know, they've been tested in so many contexts, but they might not necessarily be culturally appropriate uh, for example, when conducting research with, um, in, in my own work, with institutionalized, um, you know, orphans, um, where uh, their behavior is being sanctioned, uh, you know, by the school authority, and any any uh, signed survey will result in some sort of repercussion for them, right? And I think this is what, one of the dilemmas that is also uh, being shared uh, by some of the contributors of this book. Another ethical dilemma is IRB. I feel like this is one of the probably widely cited uh, concerns uh, and fieldwork dilemmas um, across the uh, contributors of this book is how to navigate it in the contexts, in post-authoritarian contexts, where a signed informed consent results in, you know, sense of fear, suspicion, and discomfort, because individuals are situated in cultural historical legacies of uh, Soviet state control over, you know, public knowledge and performance, right? So um, the way a researcher navigates it is perhaps, you know, doing away with inform, informed consent form and instead replacing it with uh, oral consent, which still justifies voluntary participation, but at the same time, it reduces that potential risk. It, it uh, alleviates that pressure from having to physically sign a form and then fearing for, you know, their lives. I, th- I think one thing that's important about the book is that it's, the contributors are all researchers who, for the most part, got PhDs in North American and European universities. Many of them grew up under socialism or post-socialism, um, not all, but they are all acutely aware of the power differentials involved in research. At times, it's a researcher returning to a community that she or he belongs to, but in a different role. And at times it's a researcher entering a community that he or she does not belong to, you know, but in each of these instances, you have some of the playing out of these global local interactions that we're studying. And I think what one of the strengths of the book is that everyone's paying attention to that positionality and not just treating positionality as something that you dispatch with at the beginning of a research project, you sort of mitigate it, but actually analytically using it, right? I mean, there's a lot to be gained from engaging with positionality and sort of reflexively uh, engaging with the knowledge that you're, you're working on trying to develop. We've obviously talked a lot about sort of individual research practice, what happens when a researcher goes to these different contexts or returns to the context from one, where one is from. And we've also obviously talked a little bit about this institutional review board, the IRB, how there's some sort of these institutional structures from particularly Western universities, but of course that 
structure has moved to other universities as well around the world. Uh, and that also causes problems. But I want to end our conversation, look at a different area, and th that is the field of comparative and international education. What does some of the insights you've gained from this book tell us about the field of comparative and international education? Well, one of the things, Will, we looked a lot about the production of research. And I would say, okay, if not one of the weaknesses, one, one, of, the, one of the subjects for the next book, let's say, okay, is that I don't think we engage enough with the afterlife of research, right? What happens with and to research after it's produced, right? Both to the producer of the research and to those who are researched and to those who use it, right? And I think that's very important for thinking about European, North American knowledge that's produced about post-socialist spaces, even if it's produced in some of the ways that we're working with in the book, right? To me, that's, that's something that the whole field of comparative education would do well to spend more, you know, to give more attention to the afterlife of research, what happens once we get that publication out or make that conference presentation, what happens to that knowledge, um, but that's kind of, that's not really answering your question. That's answering your question by saying, you know, here's one thing the book doesn't do. I don't know. I, all, I mean, I would be tempted to say, you know, one of the things that it does is, you know, give us, you know, new tools for, for new methods tools, new ways of thinking about methods. I don't know. How, how would you answer that? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what really led us to this book is the lack of, uh, you know, critical reflection on how to mobilize theory and methodology and methods in post-socialist educational uh, research context in particular. There's been plentiful research done uh, in the fields of anthropology and sociology that had examined the fieldwork dilemmas and uh, the adoption and recontextualization of theories in post-socialist spaces. But we hadn't seen anything in the fields of education, especially in the field of comparative and international education. So we hope that this is a meaningful contribution that you know, allows us to critically think about how to mobilize theory in a critical way, not just adopting you know, Western theoretical frameworks, but thinking about how those frameworks really relate to that context and what meaning they carry uh, for our participants as we are engaging them in the co-construction of knowledge. Uh, in addition to how we mobilize uh, methodologies and methods in the culturally responsive, culturally sensitive ways that really allow us to tap into the lived experiences of individuals and generate credible and meaningful data that accurately portrays the non-Western realities. Well, Ala Korch and Noah Sobi, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. It was a pleasure, Will. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ala Korch is an assistant professor at the School of International Training, Graduate Institute. And Noah Sobi is a professor at Loyola University, Chicago. Their new co-edited book is Reimagining Utopias, which was published by Sense last year. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. 
and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.